Hello, I'm John Dennis with the last edition of Guardian Daily. More details on this podcast's tragic demise at the end of today's show, after which you can begin your public outpourings of grief. But first, Michael Gove's free schools currently being rushed through Parliament may cost more money than the current system. A lot of surplus places are created, so you've got council-run schools, these free schools sitting up next to them. Um, there are too many places for local kids, and the local authorities, the local council are putting money, putting effort into planning, but this isn't joined up because the uh, free schools are operating independently. We hear from Ed Balls, who was at The Guardian today, talking about his campaign for the leadership of the Labour Party. You need somebody who's not only got judgement and standing, but also can stand up in a leadership debate and... Uh, talk the language of um, people. We hear of the plight of three Americans being held in an Iranian jail. We have to have hope for release. We don't really have another option, but it's not easy coming. It's maybe one of the most painful parts to keep getting your hopes up and then keep having them dashed. And as Jennifer Aniston launches a fragrance bearing her name, we ask why are celebs still so keen to make their mark in the perfume market? The reason that celebrities want this is because if people talk about it, you know, it extends the brand and it gets them in different places, and I suppose it does that, but the real reason that they want these deals is because when they work, they are a huge amount of money. Our top story today, legislation to allow parents to set up what are being called free schools is being rushed through Parliament. These schools will be allowed a large degree of independence and may compete with local authority schools. The Education Secretary, Michael Gove, says they'll raise standards and save money. But new research from the University of London, and seen by our education editor, Jeevan Vasigar, suggests otherwise. One of the things it finds is um, a lot of surplus places are created. So you've got kind of council-run schools, uh, these free schools sitting up next to them. Um, there are too many places for local kids and um, there are problems with planning. Uh, and that's the other cost. You know, authorities, the local authorities, the local council are putting, putting money, putting effort into planning. Um, but this isn't joined up because the uh, free schools are operating independently. And the study has also raised concerns about the, an increase in segregation uh, as a result of this policy. Uh, that's right. I mean, if you think about it, this is Sweden, one of the world's most egalitarian countries, very equal society, kind of relatively low kind of inequality of pay compared with the society we live in. Um, and yet they found that um, there was a lot of uh, some increased ethnic and social segregation in these free schools. And uh, what about um, educational standards? Well, that's the interesting question, because obviously um, the Tories believe that um, the schools raise standards and they don't just talk about um, free schools in Sweden. I mean, one of the big things that Michael Gove talks about is schools in America, charter schools, very similar, which he says have uh, transformed standards, um, particularly in New York. Um, But what this study finds is that um, short term, there were some improvements, but over the long term, in terms of kind of the Swedish equivalent of the A-level and university entry, um, there wasn't really a significant significant impact. Is it fair to compare, you know, the UK in 2010 with Sweden in the 90s, which was when they they began introducing more competition into their system? Uh, Well, Sweden does come from a different place. I mean, uh, Sweden, as I said, is a sort of very equal society. They don't have the British tradition of lots of um, fee-paying private schools, uh, which people say have distorted the system here. 
But, you know, Sweden is one of the places where, where free schools have been tried. Uh, and if you're going to look at how they're going to work in Britain, um, it's not a bad, bad place to start. Um, and there is a question of, you know, if these schools, um, as this researcher argues, haven't quite worked in Sweden, whether they are going to work here. And the Tories have cited Sweden as, as, a, as a model for, for what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, Gove has said he's sort of open to ideas from all across the world. And he's sort of talked about looking at Sweden, looking at Hong Kong, Alberta, America... Sweden is one of the places that's regularly seen as an inspiration because it, it, it scores very highly um, internationally in terms of educational achievement. So that's a big aspiration. But um, but there is a question about whether these free schools work. And now because this legislation is being rushed through Parliament uh, this week, uh, as things stand by Monday, uh, it will be law that parents will be able to set up free schools. Yeah, we're on the verge of a revolution in schools. Uh, I mean, this bill um, is being pushed through Parliament very fast. Um, the Tories say that's because it was a manifesto promise, a flagship policy, something they want to see brought about very quickly. Um, its opponents are worried at the speed at which it's going through. Now, it'll take a while for parents to set up these schools. We don't expect to see the first of them until September next year. Uh, but this legislation do- does enable that to happen. It opens the way for this. Jeevan Vasagar. Well, leading Labour's charge against free schools is Ed Balls, the Shadow Education Secretary. He's also a candidate for the Labour leadership, of course. The big news today has been the leaders of Unison backing Ed Miliband. But Ed Balls told our Politics Weekly podcast why he's the man for the job. I think we are choosing a leader of the opposition and a credible Prime Minister. I think I've shown in the last uh, few weeks on building schools for the future and the massive cuts to school building, but also on VAT, on free school meals, that I can be an effective leader of the opposition and really put um, Michael Gove under pressure on his judgment and on his values and the direction he's taken the country. And as a potential prime minister, I think, you know, I've been involved in government for a long time and I've been involved in some difficult issues. And choosing a prime minister is partly about judgment. And I think I've shown under pressure on big issues, I can make the right calls. Uh, on the single currency, I believe on um, dealing with Haringey, but there's a range of different things which we could talk about. The national insurance rise for the health service. But you need somebody who's not only got judgment and standing, but also can stand up in a leadership debate and uh, talk the language of um, people. And, are- and, 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 and I think, the, 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 in a way, the thing which comes out of the leadership election and the debates for me, um, the, the, the general election and the leadership debates, is that neither David Cameron or Nick Clegg or Gordon Brown ever talked in language and words and policies in the way which connected with uh, my constituents and a big difference between me and some of the other candidates is I don't really speak um, the language and the style of the think tank of the intellectual I'm uh, you know I remember Jackie Ashley writing a piece a profile of me a couple of years ago where they said the trouble with Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper is they're a bit provincial <laughs> maybe um, maybe, bit, maybe having a bit of provincialness will help us in the next but it can be a provincial intellectual that is true and um, you know I was, I was I was hesitating from sticking the phrase North London in front of my um, intellectual description but look you know uh, I think you live in North London um, I live in Castleford <laughs> but obviously stay in North London from time to time Ed Balls. And you can hear more from him in our Politics Weekly podcast, which isn't being included on the Guardian Daily feed today. You can listen to it and subscribe at guardian.co.uk slash politics. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to the last ever Guardian Daily. Coming up, celebrity fragrances. But first, 
For almost a year now, three young Americans, Sarah Shord, Shane Bauer and Josh Fattle, have been held in an Iranian prison. They were picked up after straying close to the Iranian border while hiking in Iraqi Kurdistan. Their friend, Shoin Mekfessel, missed the hike due to ill health. He's been in London lobbying for their release, and he told our Middle East editor, Ian Black, of the day they went missing. Yeah, we were all living together in Damascus. Shane and Sarah had been living in Damascus for nearly a year. Shane is a fluent Arabic speaker and had been doing some fantastic journalism. Um, Sarah was tutoring Iraqi refugees to help them get resettled in the United States. Shane and I had just been traveling around the Middle East a bit. We'd been in Lebanon. We'd actually gone to um, Israel-Palestine. We visited a friend of ours who had been shot by the Israeli army, and we visited him in the hospital, Tristan Anderson. Josh had just showed up from his teaching fellowship, and we were wondering where to go. We asked around our, you know, of our friends, and we did some net research, and we found a lot of information on Iraqi Kurdistan. Some of our friends had actually gone for short trips and had a wonderful time, said the nature there was beautiful. And we heard repeatedly that the area around Solomonia, to the, somewhat to the east, was a good place to go. It's very beautiful. It was beautiful, but I mean, it was nice in its way, but it was still a city. And we were hoping, we'd heard about these beautiful mountainous areas around, and we were, wanted to go hiking. We asked a number of people, including the hotel owner, where we were staying, including you know taxi drivers, people just on the street. All of them told us the same place. They all said Ahmed Awa, this beautiful village that's quite common for Kurds to go to, have some you know nature time with their families and such. And not a single one of those people thought to warn us that it was actually bordering on Iran. And it's possible that also it's kind of a porous border for the locals, so they kind of forgot that it, it's not so porous for Americans. So we were on our way to go there. I came down with a cold. So I told my friends I would catch up to them. They left on the afternoon of the 30th of July. I stayed behind in Solomonia. They arrived there in the evening. They hiked up to the waterfall. And then I talked to Shane the next day because I was going to meet up with him. He said they just stayed on the same trail. There were no warnings posted because had there been, Shane would have told me about this. He just said... Follow the trail. Um, we'll be on the trail. You'll meet us coming back. They never got a chance to turn around because they were basically abducted, I believe, by Iranian officials. What can you tell us about the conditions in which they've been held? And then maybe a little about the campaign to get them released and what the prospects are for that. The biggest thing of concern to us in their conditions is that Sarah has been in solitary this whole time. 23 hours a day. She does get to meet with Josh and Shane one hour a day. Do you have any hopes of, uh, of movement in the foreseeable future? Well, we haven't heard a single word about their condition since the mother's visit. About a month and a half now. I mean, we have to have hope for release. We don't really have another option, but it's not easy coming. Um, all the time, there's little developments, and we hope maybe it's a sign, you know, maybe this is an opportunity, that's an opportunity, but it's just, it's maybe one of the most painful parts to keep getting your hopes up and then keep having them dashed. Shoin Mekfessel talking to Ian Black, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash Iran. Now, Jennifer Aniston was in Harrods today in London, launching her own fragrance. 
Previous celebrities to have their own scent include Paris Hilton, Ewan McGregor, and even the top porcine Muppet Miss Piggy. Chandler Burr writes on perfume for the New York Times. So how important are celebrity brands to the fragrance industry? They were hugely important uh, for a period of about 10, 15 years. There's a woman named Catherine um, Walsh who works at Cody who could be arguably credited with the emergence of the celebrity perfume, and I, I do credit her. Uh, in fact, she was the one who originally signed uh, Jennifer Lopez. And Jennifer Lopez brand became absolutely huge, and it just astounded everyone. It seemed to come out of nowhere. And they, the, the financial success of it really was the thing that spawned the whole celebrity craze. Um, interestingly, the, celebrity, uh, the importance of celebrity perfumes in general has, has nosedived. And um, nobody can sort of figure out why the change, uh, but I have a theory, which is that a lot of these things are very, very poorly made. I don't know. I think that people just became tired of, of, of maybe buying bad product. That's one theory. Uh, you've watched the, the development of the perfume Lovely, which was Sarah Jessica Parker's fragrance. Um, what makes a successful celebrity fragrance? Well, this is very interesting because uh, I have to say that Serge Jessica's perfume was beautifully made. And it was made by two very good perfumers, uh, Laurent Le Garnec and uh, Clément Gavary. And they work for IFF, uh, which is one of the uh, uh, largest scent makers in the world. I was present, uh, it was wonderful, it was a wonderful experience uh, for the entire sort of creation of this thing. And watched her in meetings, and she lives relatively close to where I lived in, uh, in New York City. She lives in the West Village, and uh, would go down and, and, and talk with her. We walked around the, the New York and talking about smells. She was intimately involved in the creation, and they produced a, a beautiful juice, as it's called, in the industry. They launched it, and it became huge. They expected that she was going to be a $30 million uh, brand after... 12 months after a year, she became a $60 million brand within, I think, eight months. And she was the number one uh, perfume sold at Christmas. She then launched a second perfume called Covet, which I think is good. I don't think it's quite as good, but I think it's a very nice perfume. And it bombed. I learned today that of a scent named Mystique de Michael Jackson. Are, are there any celebrities who shouldn't put their name to a fragrance? There, that, that perfume actually exists. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Look, the reason that, that, that celebrities want this is because it, it people talk about it, you know, it extends the brand and it, you know, it gets them in different places. And I suppose it does that. But the real reason that they want these deals is because when they work, they are a huge amount of money, an insane amount of money. Um, Paris Hilton has made untold millions of dollars from her perfumes and basically for doing nothing because she was not involved in the creation of her perfumes at all as far as i can tell um some of them are truly awful reese witherspoon's perfume is is truly bad i mean it's 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 cheap it's utterly uninteresting but i'll tell you something britney spears has some of the best commercial, you know, sort of mastiche perfumes around. We're living at a time when, when people can become celebrities without having any discernible talent. I mean, there are people who you could be forgiven uh, for not having heard of in the US, but Jade Goody, Callum Best, Katie Price, big names in uh, the British tabloids. Um, but they've, and they've all got their own perfumes. But 
you know, they don't actually have any talent. Is the industry concerned about that? Yes, I actually think that the industry is quite concerned. If you ask them, I can't imagine getting anybody to speak on the record about any sort of concern by perfume being being made by anyone. I mean, I think that, you know, George W. Bush could get a perfume deal at this point. And I think that people uh, hate that. I think they hate it, but but they're so sort of desperate to create product that they would actually probably, some idiot would actually probably do this. Chandler Burr. Well, as I mentioned earlier, this is the last edition of Guardian Daily. I hope you've been informed and entertained by our podcasts over the last four and a half years. But before you start your Save Six Music Style campaign, I would urge you to stay subscribed to the Guardian Daily feed, because over the next few weeks you'll hear details of two new weekly news podcasts from The Guardian beginning this autumn. And in September on this feed, Michael White will return with a daily podcast from the party conferences, which will be particularly interesting in this new age of coalition politics. But for me, John Dennis, it's been a blast and a privilege to be, in some ways, I hope, the voice of The Guardian. Guardian Daily's Swan Song was produced by Chris Wade. Thank you very much for listening.